Chapter 13 Pizza is more of a wintertime meal in Iowa. It's rather expensive for what it is and causes bloating, fatigue, and sometimes depression when eaten too often or in large amounts. For these reasons, the summer months at the Clive Pizza Hut drag on with an increasing decline in business. Mike, Becky, Peter, and now Ken had to find ways to pass the time at work. Some days, not a single customer would appear. Other days, the phone would not ring at all. Mike took up painting, lathering the dumpster fence out back of vibrant green he'd found in the basement. Becky did her best to avoid Ken. She hid at her desk, holding magazines up over her face. She took long visits to the bathroom, and sometimes she just stood in the walk-in cooler, drinking beer and watching her own breath dance in puffy white clouds. She wasn't sure what her feelings for Ken were anymore. She didn't really want to know. Ken was still really nice, but he'd grown into something completely out of reach. There was this inhuman distance in his eyes and a slow, robotic shift to all his movements. He seemed perpetually in low gear. Nothing he did was in a hurry, and his daily tasks carried no importance to him. Just earlier that day, she'd watched him change a single roll of paper towels for nearly ten minutes. He'd started by simply staring at the empty cardboard tube on the wall, as if he were judgmentally waiting for the thing to change itself. But then came the job of unwrapping the new roll and unfluttering that first glued-down edge, then lifting it up to slide it in place on the post, making sure the roll spilled forward and not backward. Ken did all this with slow, dance-like sweeping hands, testing the weight of the towels as he juggled them back and forth before lifting them to the wall. It had been irritating to watch. Becky could tell by the way Ken replenished paper towels that in their years apart, his life of traveling had completely depleted him of desires, excitement, and perhaps dreams altogether. He was always stoned. Becky knew what stoned looked like. She knew what it smelled like, too. Every guy over 20 had that slow stroll and sour smell. But it wasn't the weed that had changed Ken. It was something else. Even after being born a rich child with every opportunity at short reach, Ken had somehow failed just like every other poor kid she'd gone to school with. Even though he had money and a decade of touring the country behind him, he was no one to anyone. This lonely notion hung just below his sparkling eyes in pink, wrinkled rings. He'd never found love. It was the same look Becky saw in her own reflection each afternoon while leaning into her bathroom mirror, a skeletal and cold acceptance of the hugeness of the world and the small meaninglessness of life. It was also the face of someone who'd lost something important and not been aware of its significance. It was the face of substance abuse, whatever substance was close and cheap. It was the face of a stupid loser. But she couldn't help but reminisce over their high school days whenever he'd brush past her in the tight corners of the dish line, or when he'd do something nice like reach products too high on the shelf or chase away a mouse. But all this he now did as a stranger, a new person, a man, a lonely, quiet man. 
Within three days, Ken decided that his past, just like his parents, was dead and gone, chewed and swallowed by the sick cruelty of the world. And just like that ice-blue ocean where his folks' remains no longer floated, the view up ahead was the same as that which lie behind, just cold emptiness where a glass-like earth reflects the fake white clouds hiding an imaginary heaven and a billion other burned-out screaming stars no better than the one he'd been born under. Ken's depression was his art. He'd sculpted it in his hands as he spoke about music. He'd given up writing about it a long time ago, but that dark black nugget in his heart had always been his favorite muse. And so now that he'd returned to his origins, he'd taken great steps in surrounding himself and his new employees in an arena of nihilism. First came the replacement stereo for the kitchen, a small white boombox with cartoonish speakers and a broken antenna. He'd crammed a single CD into it and then immediately broken off the eject button. This important CD was his favorite self-recorded bootleg of a fish concert somewhere near the Canadian border. The exact location had escaped him. The recording was nearly two hours in length, although it could have been the same song the whole time and sounded much like it to everyone but Ken. These wailing, trebled guitar solos soared through the kitchen, over the dish line, and out into the dining room, endlessly stuck on repeat. By day two, Mike, even from his post out by the dumpster fence, knew each jazz bass breakdown and erratic drum fill with wincing anticipation. Peter used the CD as a way to tell time. He left in his car each day before the sing-along chorus of the third track, returning sometime later to the clockwork timing of a triangle banjo duet warbling its way through a hacked gospel hymn. Becky didn't notice the music as much as the others. She was too distracted by the hard task of trying to look aloof and too busy to talk. Ken's presence was melting away the ice around her heart, but she didn't want him to know it. She was afraid what he might do with that knowledge, so she stayed cold, pretend cold, only letting her eyes follow him when his back was turned, and quickly scowling whenever he returned her gaze. There was truth to the scowl, but little by little, the truth was less and less. She was amazed at the strange circumstances that had brought them back together in the same uniforms and building where they'd first fallen in love. And she was surprised by Ken's decision to stay a while and help out, even though they needed no help and had nothing for him to really do. This made Becky secretly hope that it was her he'd decided to stick around for. But this idea, however beautiful and perfect and amazing it was, was something she couldn't share with anyone, not even Mike. These thoughts kept her up at night eating peanut butter in her pantry. They also made her drink beer much faster, so she peed more often, thinking and worrying while shut up in the women's room stall, listening to fish play their asses off through encore number three as Ken playfully drummed along, banging and slapping the countertop, cash register, and walls where he leaned his way through the day. This was Becky's favorite part of the CD, because it was where she got to hear the little amount of life left in Ken dance its way out of his lovely hands. She still loved him, 
but couldn't say it out loud. And in a beautifully strange coincidence, the words of the song in encore number three came to settle over this same resolution, a love without limits, floating aimlessly alone. Ken had sold the jukebox, taken down the salad bar, and replaced them with a few loose chairs, a broken table, and an overflowing ashtray. There was also a bong posing as a lamp beneath an old lampshade. When he wasn't standing at the front counter, Ken was seated here at this small table with his guitar in his lap and a cigarette dangling from his mouth, noodling along to the CD with the musical talent of a litter box and the lazy playfulness of a house cat. He barely held the guitar correctly, and sometimes his hands would miss the strings entirely, his fingers wagging noiselessly as his head bobbed along. Peter was apparently the most impatient of the bunch. He'd tolerated Ken's shitty strumming only a few times before deciding there was plenty he and his car could do to better pass the time. Courtney was long gone now, existing only in slight, stinging memories where their tongues used to collide. This brought a loneliness to Peter's nights that even an ogre like Courtney could seem like a welcome distraction from. It was hard for him to not call her, but so far he'd managed to resist. Becky had changed. Before she'd been drunk, rude, and distant, but at least an attainable kind of distant. He wanted to know more about her, but now she waved him away whenever he approached her. She shrugged at his interest in her, and she never once took her eyes off Ken. Not once that Peter had noticed, and Peter had made a habit of watching Becky quite often. Ken's guitar-holding routine irritated Peter, and Ken's zen-like approach to life made him confused and concerned for his own future. But mostly, Ken made Peter jealous, and Peter had no way to hide it. So he spoke very little now, and just walked quickly from the building to his car, shaking his keys and spitting into the gravel lot, back and forth, dozens of times a day. There was nowhere to go, so Peter resorted to driving nowhere. Today, he'd made it nearly 90 miles straight east, getting there at a roaring speed, but now, sitting on the hood of his car in grave silence, he listened to a bean field lie there below him, quiet as a painting. Every county in Iowa looked the same, felt the same, and smelled the same, because all Peter could taste was defeat. Even behind the wheel of his car, where he let stars form into blades of light, he was still just a teenage virgin. And he was mad because he knew learning something from Ken was his only ticket to the next level.